Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture. We are a non-profit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This presentation and many others are available through our online library at instituteofcatholicculture.org and on our ICC app. Whether you are looking for weekly Bible studies, in-depth courses, or talks related to the faith, you will find it at the ICC. Please check out our upcoming schedule of live online events and engage with us on social media. All are welcome to join our growing international ICC family. For handouts, links, and further study materials, please visit this program's page on our website or app. In nomine Patris et Filii Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Veni, veni, Emmanuel, captivum solvei Israel. Qui gemit in exilio, privatus Dei filio. Gaude, gaude, Emmanuel, nascetur protei Israel. In nomine Patris et Filii Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Amen. Our speaker this evening is a professor of Greek, Latin, history, and patristics at Our Lady of Guadalupe Seminary in Denton, Nebraska. His master's degree is in classical Greek and Latin, and his doctorate is in the Fathers of the Church. He has published on the Fathers of the Church and on contemporary church history, particularly Vatican II and the liturgy in the 20th century. His most recent publication is the English translation of Yves Chiron's book titled Annibale Bonini, Reformer of the Liturgy. He has taught many courses for the ICC and our Magdal Apostolate. It is a great pleasure to welcome back to the Institute, Dr. John Papino. Welcome, doctor. Thank you. I'm going to sing something else to you, my dear friends, ladies and gentlemen. It begins like this, but I'm going to skip a few verses. Credo in unum Deum. All right, skip a few verses down the line. And it says, Et incarnatus est Spiritus Sanctum, Ex Maria Virgine, Et homo factus est. Throwing a bell is the creed. And the middle there, I just mean, Incarnatus est. And he was incarnated. We'll talk about what that means, by the way, by the Holy Ghost or from the Holy Ghost out of the Virgin Mary, and he was made man. And that's what we're going to be talking about. We say it every Sunday. We, we recite the creed, certain feast days. By the way, tonight is um, first Vespers, or depending on your calendar, the vigil of the Immaculate Conception tomorrow. So happy feast there. And of course, uh, Our Lady had to exist. Well, for the incarnation to happen as it did, we needed to have a, a, a Mary who was also immaculate, so that's tomorrow's feast. Now, incarnation. Here's how I'm going to approach it, okay, tonight. Um, I'm going to try, anyway, to teach just what the church teaches. It's a mystery, 
So I'll begin with a definition of what incarnatio, incarnation, means. It's an interesting word when you stop and think about it. As uh, Peter was saying, my training is, is in ancient languages, so I'm kind of keen on that. Then we'll approach it as a great mystery, which is always good to remember. The incarnation is a mystery, which means that our reason alone cannot fully encompass it. And so there's just a limit beyond which we won't be able to go. And it's the sort of thing we'll, be, we'll understand better once we get to see God face to face. Then I'll discuss the dogma as it is. And there, of course, I'll, I'll realize who, is, who are going to be my sources. Well, of course, the declarations of the church, the creed, the great theologians. St. Thomas Aquinas, of course, is the one who defines things most clearly. And he's the one on whom the church is on whom the church relies, I think, most often in a way, for these difficult concepts. But of course, we're going to deep or reach deep into what the fathers of the church have said as well as they could say it. And then we'll talk just a bit metaphysically about the possibility of the incarnation. Manifestly, it was possible since it happens, but it's a good thing to, to talk about. It's fittingness. Was it fitting that it happened? And what does that entail? And then whether it was necessary or not, uh, depending on certain uh, parameters. And of course, you know, the scripture will play a prominent role here. The outline I follow is the classic outline. It's even the outline. Now, believe it or not, I, I only turned to the Catechism of the Catholic Church at the end of preparing my lecture. And sure enough, the outline is the same. There just is a certain outline that one follows in presenting the incarnation. So, but if you have if you want to delve more deeply into it, the Catechism of the Catholic Church is pretty good, especially the footnotes will open up the historical dimension of the church's um, richer and richer teaching on what the incarnation is, particularly in the face of some of the more obvious mistakes that have been made about the um, incarnation. So let's dig in. What does it mean, incarnatio? Well, uh, it means in flesh. It means something came into flesh. Now, at first glance, the term incarnation does not seem to do the job because the word of God, the eternal Logos, the son of the father, took on flesh, yes, but not only flesh, right? I mean, strictly speaking, and I don't mean here flesh as opposed to, you know, blood and bones, but he didn't just take like a meat suit on. He took on a full human nature. So he took on not only the flesh, the body, but also the soul. So he has a human soul as well. So some people say, well, incarnation, but everyone, and indeed, it, it has to be said, there, were, there was a heresy in the fourth century that said that Christ incarnate did not have a human soul, but that the divine logos, the word, took the place of the human soul. And that was condemned in 381 pretty early. And since then, everyone understands. In fact, if you look throughout the Bible, the word flesh is used to mean man or mankind or human nature. So it's kind of understood. Now, we know, we understood therefore he was incarnated, he was made, he received flesh, he was made flesh, and he was made man. The other languages do it differently. So for example, Father Hezekiah is an Oriental priest, 
And over there in the East, the Greeks have a different word for incarnation. They say, en anthropesis. Now, in Greek, anthropos means man, like anthropology, you know, the study of man. En anthropesis means in homination or in humanation, it's more precise. And even some of you may know German, you may be German speakers. The Germans have a word, it's called menschwerdung, the man becoming or the becoming man of uh, the Son of God, those words are very good and very precise. But Latin and our dear English and Romance languages prefer the word incarnation, so that's what we'll use. But just so you know, what how terms can be important. So what does it mean? It means that the word took a whole human nature when he became man. And there are two ways of looking at this, okay? There's the active process whereby it comes, it happens, where God raised to himself a specific determined human nature that formed in the womb of Mary at the moment of conception. Now, there's no delay. To make it subsist in the second person of the Trinity so that now a divine person has a human nature. I want to say that again. A divine person, which had therefore a divine nature, now also has a human nature, but it still is one person and is one divine person. That's what happens at the incarnation as an active, as an action. But then we might say passively as a state. In other words, what is there, what we see, what Our Lady had in herself for these nine months, what Joseph and the shepherds and the Magi and the Bethlehemites and then the Egyptians and then the Nazarenes, the Galileans, the Jews in Jerusalem, the doctors in the temple when he was a boy. What they saw was the incarnation as a state. And what is that? Again, definitions are important. It is the permanent union by reason of which the word of God, without ceasing to be the word, is at the same time a perfect man. And by perfect here, I don't just mean sinless, which of course is also true, but full with everything that makes a man but sin. More briefly, it is the singular union of divine nature and human nature in the one person of the word. So that person is a divine person with two natures. It is also called the hypostatic union. Now, the word hypostatic sounds complicated, it's long, it kind of sounds medical nearly, but it's easy to understand. You just remember that the word, the Greek word hypostasis means person. Sometimes people speak of personal union, meaning union in a person of the two natures. Um, and it's how to describe it. Some Kajetan and other theologians have said, the human nature and the divine nature embrace each other so closely, so intimately, that a single personality, if you will, comes into being. The word preexistent and eternal takes to himself humanity so fully that he makes it his own. It is now his nature along with all of its properties and works, all the things that a man does, he did. God 
is incarnate. God is born. God suffers. God dies and rises again according to his human nature, because all of these things he does as a divine person, but by reason of his human nature. And this is the only time it ever happens, is the incarnation. And it's so unique an event that one may well say of Christ that he is the incarnation. Just as one says of Our Lady that she is the Immaculate Conception, because there's only one, he is the incarnation. Now, I'm going to talk about the various synonyms that, Father, that the Bible and Father of the Church have used to speak of this, so that when you read the Bible and you hear these words, you'll know, oh, it's the incarnation. But before I do that, I do want to point out the two principal errors that have existed regarding this mystery. And the first of these errors, well, there are several others. Okay, I'll expand it a bit. Very early on, already in the days of St. Paul and of St. John the Evangelist, there was a group of people who could not bring themselves to believe that the Son of God, the eternal Word, could possibly actually take on something as grubby and mean as a human body and a human soul, right? You mean he had to sleep, perspired? They couldn't believe it. So they believed that it was a kind of a hoax, I guess, whereby the Son of God took on the appearance of a man, but it was like a, a hologram. Like you couldn't, re it wasn't really anything substantial there. It was fake. And the name for that is the docetists, from a Greek verb, which means to appear or to seem. The doctrine is called docetism. So that is that he didn't really take on a human nature at all, just a hologram. He just seemed to be a man, but there was no man there. And that's why uh, St. John wept when people said that, because he had put his head on the breast of our Lord at the Last Supper, and he had been the one of the apostles to be at the foot of the cross and see with his eyes the blood dripping from our Lord. He knew that was a real man right there. And so that's why he's the one. He says, you can't separate. He's against those who destroy Christ, dissolve him. And that's who the Antichrist is. It's in, I think, second and third John, the epistle, little epistles he writes, because he's a very old man. It says the Antichrist, they dissolve him, they break him down. Um, and, but also, as you know, St. John is the great teacher of the divinity of our Lord. They call him St. John the theologian. Why? Aren't they all theologians? Isn't St. Thomas Aquinas a theologian? In this case, theologian does not mean one who discourses about God, just in the way that anthropologists discourse about man and so forth. No, it's flipped. It means he taught that the theos, God, or that the logos, the word, is theos, God. Theologian, he says the word is God on the one hand, but he's also the one who knew the full humanity of our Lord because he touched it. What we have felt and seen and touched. That's also St. John who says this. So that's docetism. 
but heresies abound and come back again. I'm going to skip over Arianism because it's not quite what we're talking about here. Then I have to go to Nestorianism. Now, Nestorius was the patriarch of uh, Constantinople, and he said that the divine person word took on a human person and dwelled in that human person the way, for example, that incense smoke dwells in a temple. Now, if we speak, and this is where you have to be careful, if you say that Christ was a human person, you believe that, and you also believe that he is a divine person, that's two persons. And that's the error of Nestorius. You can't hold that. The church condemned him pretty heavily, said, no, it's one person, a divine person that has taken on a human nature, a full human nature, that there are not two persons. That's Nestorius. So that's excluded. All the Orthodox people cheered, of course, yes, down with Nestorius. But then there's the opposite error. And that's the error to say, sure, there's one person. In fact, there's only one nature, too. And that's all wrong. And that is those who believe that there's one nature are called the monophysites, from monos, meaning one, and the Greek phusis means nature. And monophysites exist in all sorts of stripes and colors. There are those who believe that he did not take on a, a, a true human nature. There are those who believe that the human nature and the divine nature kind of blended into a third thing, a mix, an alloy of some kind, and other possibilities as well. And so that's wrong, because it's not one blended nature, it's two natures. And we still had to work it out the most. But later on, there are those who said, oh, he's a full human nature, but his will is only divine. He only has a divine will, because a person should have only one. And those are called the, that's the last fancy word. Well, there'll be more, but uh, the last fancy word of this particular. Uh, the monothelites believe he only had one will, and that led to all sorts of trouble. And I'll let you in on a little secret. There's a pope who, without embracing this error, kind of fostered it and allowed it to spread and even forbade anyone to preach against it. And the name of that pope is Honorius. And uh, Honorius came up at Vatican I when they were discussing the infallibility of the pope. So it's possible for a pope, and it happened here certainly, without formally teaching heresy, because the Holy Ghost prevents the Pope from, from teaching error in matters of faith and morals, when he's teaching ex cathedra, formally defining and so forth. But he did kind of foster that mistake. And there's a council in 681, Constantinople III, that will condemn Honorius for fostering heresy. And for a long time, the memory of Honorius was kind of, his name was Mud for a long time. In fact, kind of to this day. So watch out. You know, it's some some of these subtle errors, even someone like Honorius kind of let it go without condemning it. And this is, you know, some like 50 years it was around the place. So those are the errors. So don't believe any of those errors. So what are the terms used by the Bible, by the fathers to speak of this incarnation? One word they use is that of mani 
manifestation. God manifests himself, shows himself. And indeed, that this is one of the uh, purposes of the incarnation, is so that men with their eyeballs can see God. When you see Christ, you see God because you're seeing a divine person. So 1 Timothy 3.15, 3.16, I beg your pardon, says, Great is the mystery of godliness, which was manifested in flesh. And St. Paul says it again to the same person in 2 Timothy 1.10 this time, that he is now made, God, the word, is now made manifest by the illumination of our Savior, Jesus Christ. So he manifests himself and he sheds out light as Christ the word incarnate. And the fathers are going to use this all the time. St. Athanasius, St. Gregory of Nazianzus. We speak of manifestation of appearance of the word. And in, in the Oriental rites, they speak of the feast of the Epiphany or of the Theophany, the appearance of God, manifestation. Another word is embodiment. Speaking of the body, Hebrews 10, 5, a body thou hast fitted to me. This is the, the word speaking to God more generally. And... Uh, Origen and Tertullian are going to pick up on this word. They're ancient writers. Origen writes in the 240s, maybe 230s, 240s. Tertullian, a bit sooner, around 210. And each word, they use different words. Origen is Greek. He says, ensomatosis. Tertullian says, incorporatio, the incorporation. This does not mean to incorporate the way we think of it in English. It means the embodiment. So that Christ incarnate is the embodiment of the divine word because he's in a body. So that's number two. Number three, there's the word. It's a difficult word in English because it has another meaning. But we speak of condescension. Now, you know, when we speak of a condescending tone, it's not very positive, but pay attention to the word. There's the word descent in there, right? Descension, descent, so coming down. Con is the prefix that means with. So it means he comes down and is with us. He comes down to our level. Condescension. In Philippians 2.7, it's put this way. He emptied himself. One speaks of the self-emptying of the divine word. In the sense, as he came from heaven, can it poured himself into the material world in in being in, in taking on the the uh, humanity and that word self-emptying there's a greek word for it which i'm only going to give to you is kenosis that means emptying self-emptying because sometimes recently ordained priests fresh out of seminary like to throw around words like kenosis to you know, to show you that they paid attention in class and you'll hear kenosis anyway now you know it don't be too impressed, okay? It just means self-emptying, that's all. And uh, St. Athanasius, now, St. Athanasius is an important father of the church because he is living and working in the 4th century, the 300s. He was an expert theologian at the Council of Nicaea, 325, uh, that defined that the Word is co-eternal with the Father, consubstantial with the Father, Though the Son of God is also God. 
or is God. And he writes against the Arians who believed that the Son of God was less than God. Now, let me correct a, a common error that I, I hear. I poll my seminarians, and half of them have usually heard this. Arianism, so that's the doctrine of Arius, does not teach that Jesus Christ was only a man. That's a common mistake. And if you haven't been taught that mistake, good. What Arianism teaches is that the, that the divine word, the Logos, the Son of God, is inferior to God the Father and that he has a beginning. In other words, there was a time when the word was not. There was a time when the Son of God did not exist at all, when the Father was the only person with a divine nature until he created, they use the word created, his Son, and then there were two. St. Athanasius, therefore, he fights Arius. The whole empire became Arian, okay? The emperors were Arian. The official religion of the empire in the 350s was this mistake, and which is unfortunate because that is just the time when the empire sent uh, missionaries to the Germanic tribes, the Goths. And that's why, for those of you who are history buffs, when the Germanic tribes invaded the Western Roman Empire, most of them were Aryan heretics because they'd been sent missionaries at just this juncture. So St. Athanasius, he's important. He says, on account of the weakness of men, condescended and appeared on earth. So that's another word, third word, condescension. Number, word number four, the assumption of a human nature. Now, again, let's be careful with our terms. The doctrine of the assumption, as we commonly speak of it, is the assumption of Our Lady into heaven. It means taking up. Okay? That's one thing. This is a different meaning of the word. This means the taking on of a human nature. He, he assumed a human nature. You find that in uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 7. Philippians and Hebrews and... Um, the beginning of the Gospel of John are fundamental texts in the New Testament for the Incarnation. Philippians 2.7 says, after the emptying himself out business, taking the form of a servant. So taking the form of a servant, here meaning the human being. So he took it, being made in the likeness of men and in habit found as a man. And... Likewise, in Hebrews 2.16, which is written for Jews, so it, uses, it talks about Abraham and things, he says, regarding the word in the incarnation, of the seed of Abraham he taketh hold, meaning he takes a hold of the seed of Abraham, meaning not only of human nature, but of a specific one, namely a descendant of Abraham. So he's embedded within a tribe. So that's Philippians and Hebrews. And the fathers, well, this is where the language can get dodgy. Some Orthodox, Catholic, Greek fathers, when they speak of the assumption by the divine word of human nature, sometimes use language that is imprecise and equivocal. This is what I mean. They will say that the word elevated a human nature to the dignity of the hypostatic union, okay? But then they also say, he elevated a man. 
or they speak of the assumed man, which is not quite right, right? Because if there's a pre-existent man who is assumed, that means that he's assuming a human person. And then you're back into Nestorianism, right? But, and you have, this is when you read the Fathers of Church, you have to be kind of aware of this. Expressions that everyone understood in the correct way in the 300s, let's say, came to be misused by a heretic like Nestorius to teach something wrong. And so as a result, the church condemns those phrases without necessarily condemning the men who used them, knowing well that the men who used those expressions meant no harm. Get the idea? So to say he assumed man, or speak of the man assumed, in the 360s, most people say, well, yeah, talking about human nature. After Nestorius, let's not talk like that anymore. It's erroneous. Get the idea? And that happens a lot through the history of doctrines. And so St. Cyril of Alexandria, who's the one who defeats Nestorius at the Council of Ephesus in 431, rejects that language. And there's another word you'll sometimes see. So those of you maybe who've studied theology in a school of theology or on your own, you will run across this word, oikonomia. There are various ways of spelling it. It means economy. It means the arrangement of affairs, how things are organized, usually in a house, but it's extended as meaning to speak of the disposition of natures in the incarnate word. How do the natures relate to each other? How are they disposed? How do they relate to the person? All of that is called the economy of the incarnation. It's a common Greek word, but it's a Greek, it's a Greek word also used by the Council of Chalcedon, Constantinople too, and other places too. So, so much for the synonyms. And it's useful to have these synonyms because in a certain sense, they allow us to approach the incarnation, right? Assumption of a human nature, manifestation to man, condescension of the word. All these things help us um, bring our mind closer to the central thing, which is itself a mystery. So now I'm going to talk about this thing, the incarnation, as a mystery. It's a supernatural mystery. It's not a natural mystery. A natural mystery would be, I wonder who's behind that door. It's a mystery. Then you open the door and, uh, you know, there's Linda. Oh, this is a supernatural mystery, meaning it is beyond what reason could penetrate all by itself. It it exceeds the capacity of our little old reason fully to encompass. So it must be revealed to us. We have to be told, by the way, God became man. Really? Yes. So it, it requires the sense of faith. And it has the authority of God as a guarantee. So we can know it to be true by faith. And there's plenty of faith, well, faith in Revelation, meaning faith in the Bible. Because the Bible tells us all over the place that he is God and man. But even so, even with Revelation, it's not something we'll, we'll get quite fully as long as we're down here. And the principal source we have for it being a mystery is this. Let me read to you 1 Corinthians chapter 2, is verses 7 and following. This is St. Paul speaking. We speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, a wisdom which is hidden, 
which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew. For if they had known it, this mystery, they would never have crucified the Lord of glory. So the mystery clearly here is that he was God. If they'd known it, see, that's the mystery, how this, that man that you can point to is a divine person. But as it is written, that I have not seen nor ear heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man what things God hath prepared for them that love him. But to us God hath revealed them by his Spirit, and so on. So it had to be revealed. It is a mystery that the Spirit has revealed, and St. Paul says it explicitly. And the Father said the same thing. St. Athanasius, St. Gregory of Nyssa, Cyril of Alexandria, him again, the anti historian. So that puts us in the 520s. I beg your pardon, 420s. How great the mystery of piety, not a human wisdom, the divine wisdom hidden in an unspeakable and incomprehensible depth. Such is the mystery of Christ, he says, in a book called Against Nestorius. It kind of tells you the agenda. And the Council of Ephesus of 431, the very one that speaks of there being but one person with two natures, will confirm the language of Cyril, saying that the union of natures in one person is unspeakable, unutterable, incomprehensible. And St. Augustine also, this birth from a virgin is neither grasped by reason nor demonstrated by example. In other words, it's very difficult, right? When you're teaching, some of you may be teachers, so you can either explain the logic of the thing reasonably, step one, step two, step three, that's one way. And then you add illustrations and examples, right? So that your students can grasp it. For this, we have neither. If it, if it could be grasped by reason, it would be a marvel. It would be marvelous. It would be as excellent as it is. And if it could be demonstrated by an example, it wouldn't be singular. There'd be another one. And so it's hard to reach around. And in a way, God in the Old Testament, in his history, has provided us with similar mysteries, not the same one, kind of as a way to help us. Example, the burning bush. So here you have a bush made of wood, and it's on fire, there are flames, and yet it is not consumed by it. And it was a very typical allegorical interpretation of the Father to say that represents the incarnation. The fire is the divine nature, and the wood is the human nature, and yet the wood is not consumed or destroyed, because normally that kind of close contact with God would annihilate you, right? That's why the high priest, he would go into the Holy of Holies only once a year, and they were all afraid. He had bells on his outfit, so they knew he wasn't completely destroyed yet. As an aside, at about the, the time of the Council of Ephesus, one nature, I beg your pardon, now, now I'm, I'm saying heresy. Two natures, one person. One person, two natures. Because another aspect of this is that if, if the one person has a human nature and therefore can be born, who's born? The divine person is born. God is born. God has a mother. And therefore, the most holy virgin is the mother of God. And that's the word it was used at Ephesus, and that crushed Nestorius. Well, about the Council of Ephesus, that allegorical interpretation of the burning bush, human nature, divine nature, 
has a new lease on life where the bush that is not consumed is our lady and the fire is the God that she bears within herself without it yet consuming her. And so as an aside, you can see how the divine motherhood of Our Lady is necessarily connected to the mystery of the incarnation. You believe in the incarnation, you must believe that Mary is the mother of God. And those who deny it end up in all sorts of trouble, I think. Um, and Leo the Great. Now, Leo, he's the great pope of the year 450. Um, when he was a deacon back in Rome, he built St. Mary Major. He was the deacon put in charge of that great church of Our Lady, which was built, how shall I say, to glory, to honor and glorify Our Lady. And he says, in a sermon on Christmas, by the way, just as an aside, if you want to know what the fathers say of a specific doctrine, you can use indexes and things fine, but simply look for the sermons they say on those feast days. So, for example, Leo says, it's a sermon on Christmas, which is the place to study the incarnation. Unless the faith believe that both natures met in a single person, no sermon can explain it. And as an aside, okay, this is pretty heavy stuff. So I'm going to take a little break to recommend something to you. If you're interested in what the fathers have to say, particularly what they have to say about this or that scripture in the Bible, there's a whole series. Some of you may know this already. It's called The Ancient Christian Commentary on Scripture. I hold in my hand, this volume is volume three, and it's just on the gospel according to St. Luke. So if you get the whole collection, you can imagine it takes up several shelves. I highly recommend it. It's not perfect. It doesn't have everything. How could it? it that would have required a much bigger library than I have. As part of my preparation for tonight, I did go to... See, Luke, of course, is the, the gospel writer of Christmas, right? And to see what the Father said about those various things is very delightful in good translations. I, I can recommend it, I think. So if, you're in, if you want to start acquiring a good theological library from the point of view of the Fathers, I recommend this. So it's a mystery. And the church has often repeated it. There's a mystery from Gregory the Ninth, Pope in 1228 to St. Pius X in the 20th century and to this day. It's a mystery. It's in the Catechism, mystery. And it makes sense that it's a mystery because there's zero reason for anyone ever to believe or think that a single individual substance, a person, could possibly have two natures. I mean, you don't hear of a stone that also has the nature of a pickle. I, I hope I, I don't sound, you know, glib, but the notion itself is beyond understanding. And why do we believe it? Because Christ, uh, you could point to him, well, there's a man, Christ, I see him, gave us so many evidences of his divinity through his miracles, right? He he's, has power over the demons, over the tempest, over disease, over all sorts of things, on the one hand. And that he says it, right? Before Abraham was, I am, I am. I mean, when we say I am that way, you're saying I'm. God. I'm the one who is. And so that's why we believe. But reason alone, and the errors I mentioned to you, historianism, monophysitism, monothelitism, and others, all indicate how difficult it is for the human reason to get it right. Now, here's another question that one has to ask about 
this mystery. The incarnation, is it specific to, the, to our religion? Is it specifically Christian? I mean, if other religions came up with it, maybe it isn't so far from unassisted reason. And people will allege this. Some of you may have heard this said. And indeed, if you read Greek mythology, or if you read the Latin versions, I'm a big fan of Ovid, the Metamorphoses, and he talks about things of this kind. So, for example, Zeus and Mercury, two gods, appear as human beings to the old couple, Baucis and Philemon. Uh, Baucis and Philemon are the only people who are generous enough to take to give them hospitality, even though they're also the poorest people in the city. And so, as punishment to humanity, Zeus causes a flood, kills all of wicked humanity, but allows this couple to survive. Sounds familiar. Anyway, I'm not going to get into mythology, except to say, do we not have here an example of gods appearing as men? Do we not have a theophany? And think of Apollo appearing as a handsome young man to countless maidens with, with a view to seducing them. But these are superficial resemblances. These ancient gods who show up, as people walking around, are not incarnations of the eternal creator God. They are more like immortal human beings who show up on earth. Apollo and Zeus had bodies up there in Mount Olympus. They don't have to become incarnate. They're not these expressible, eternal, impassable creators like our God is. So it's really not the same thing. And nor do they have a double nature. They have the nature of an ancient God. They don't have the nature of God, Almighty, and a human nature in one person. It's out of the question. So you might say, well, all right, Dr. Pabino, I guess that's it. Then you've shown us it's a mystery. We can't understand it. Good night. I'm going to bed now. And yet, no, because it was revealed to us, and we are called, I think, to meditate upon this mystery. I mean, it's a, it's a mystery of the rosary, which you're supposed to meditate. I mean, just even from the devotional point. So let's think about it. Is it believable? Yes. We believe that he is God, Christ, by his acts, by his own authority, by his words. And so we believe him when he say he is God. And we know him to be man because he was crucified and walked around and St. John touched him and rested on his breast and all these things. So he's manifestly God and manifestly man. And so that's one thing. So there are ways in which we can kind of think about it, kind of analogously, maybe using comparisons. So, for example, some examples that some fathers of the church have given to try to make us understand it is the union of the word, the concept you have in your mind, invisible, that then comes out of your mouth as vibrations to express the invisible reality of the concept or the inaudible reality of the concept in your mind, and others too. Uh, and there are reasons of fittingness, they're called as well. These are not proofs, but they're fitting. And this is something I have to say that in my own journey as a Christian, whenever I had a doubt that our religion was true, this is what I would meditate on. This may not be for everyone. It was for me. First of all, the existence of God was always obvious to me. The creator God, there's creation. And clearly he put a lot of love in creating such a perfect world where everything fits together, you know, from the ant's nest to the tree that grows just right to the human body, everything's perfect. It would just make sense that such a loving God would want to reveal himself to us 
in the way that is best adapted for us to receive him. And that would be by manifesting himself to us as one of us in the way we relate to directly as person, person. So we can understand this personal relationship with God through this person, divine person with a human nature. Also, so there's kind of this, and this part of the condescension and the epiphany and the, you know, the manifestation. And also a response to our desire to reach out to him in a way that we want to know God in a way and that he would fulfill that out of love too. So the incarnation is fitting from that point of view. But there's more to this fittingness, and I'm going to get into that now. Because the fittingness and necessity are sometimes mistaken. Right? You'll say, for example, well, he had to. God had to come as a man to pay the price for sin. God had to come as a man to redeem all of humanity. He had to, he had to, he had to. Now, there's a way in which this is true and a way in which it's not true. The truth is that God is bound by nothing. He didn't have to do anything at all, right? He didn't have to redeem us. He could have just left us to our sorry state. Or he could have redeemed us by an act of the will. Or he could have redeemed us through some other thing. He could have done anything or nothing. God's sovereign will cannot be judged or plumbed. However, there's a fittingness for him to do the things the way in which he did them. And so there are arguments for the fittingness of the incarnation from several points of view. One of them is from the point of view of the perfections of God as God, God's goodness, God's communication, because there's a principle. God, I mean, become good, the good, goodness, communicates itself, right? If you know someone who is good, you will notice that his acts are good and do good. No one is good who locks himself in a room, you never see him. If someone is truly good, it, he, it communicates out. Likewise, God is good. He will try. It's fitting for him to communicate out, as I was saying, out of love. And the incarnation is the most fitting, perfect communication imaginable. I mean, how much more can you communicate with a race, with a species, like the human species, than by actually absorbing its nature into your own person? That's as intimate as communication gets. The communication is immediate and separable. It's the highest expression of love. God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. John 3.16. Also, it was a way for him to, to, it's an outpouring of his omnipotence. And that is what his omnipotence, his almightiness, expresses itself in, in the highest way in the incarnation. I mean, he created the whole universe. That's pretty mighty. But even mightier than the creation of the universe is the descent of God into the creation and assuming a human nature to be part of creation to the extent that the human nature is part of creation. That is the greatest of all his works, really. And think of the Magnificat of Our Lady. Because he that is mighty hath done great things to me, and holy is his name. He hath showed might in his arm. He hath scattered the proud of the conceit of their heart. And she's speaking here of the incarnation specifically. She's bearing. It's even more than any other miracle, says uh, St. Gregory of Nyssa. And St. Leo the Great says, actually, he puts it even more precisely. God's omnipotence appears above all in the fact that the divine nature did not annihilate the human nature in the union. On the one hand, 
And on the other hand, that this assumption of the human nature did not diminish his divine nature. That both are left intact is an expression of his own. He, if he could do that, I mean, he could do anything. And that's one of the greatest, or it's the greatest expression. His justice is manifested. The, the fact that he offered, that the word incarnate was the propitiation for our sins manifests in the most sovereign manner, in the highest manner, divine justice. And his wisdom, because wisdom is where mercy and justice meet. And in the incarnation, passion, death, and resurrection of our Lord, you have both justice and mercy. Justice, because a debt was owed to God, because of the fall of our first parents, right? The penalty is death. So justice requires it. Mercy, however, is that he intervened. Man couldn't save himself. He intervened in such a way that he could save man. Mercy. And as it says in Psalm 84, verse 11, mercy and truth have met each other. Justice and peace have kissed. In other words, mercy and justice have come together in truth and peace in God and in the incarnation manifest this. So these are arguments of fitness from the point of view of the qualities of God, justice, wisdom, omnipotence. How about arguments that it was the Son that was incarnate? I see there's a question here, and that's what I'm getting to now. The question is this. Am I to understand that not all three persons became man, only the second person of the Trinity? That's what I'm getting to now, my dear Susan. It, now, God could have done it but it would be unfitting for any of the three persons but the Son to be incarnate. Why? Well, God the Father, his person, the person of God the Father, has as a personal property unbegottenness, right? He begets the Son, and the Son is begotten from him eternally. And so it makes more sense for the person of the Trinity who is begotten within the Trinity if he's going to be begotten on earth, that it should be he who is and not one of the other three or of them. Do you see the fittingness? It just makes sense that the son in heaven becomes a son on earth. It would have been disturbing to men. Okay, this is an explanation that Tertullian gives in the third century. It would have been disturbing for us if he'd come and reveal to us, I am three persons incarnate in one, with one human nature. So that's one argument of fittingness for the word to be incarnate. Another one is this. The word is the image of the Father, fine. And it is also through the word that all things were made. It is fitting then that when God came to remake creation through redemption, right? To recreate in a way, using the term in a broad sense, it makes sense that it also should be done through the word. You see, there's a, it, it's fitting that it should be done in that way. And furthermore, from the point of view well, there's more things. Um, someone, I think it was you in years, was talking about the image of light and likeness of God in man, right? We lost, we human beings lost our image and likeness through the fall. And Christ came to restore in man the image and likeness of God. Vatican II says that he came to uh, reveal man to man. That's what it means, right? To restore that. So who better 
to restore the image and likeness of God in man than the Son, who is the image of the Father. It makes sense. Also, among other things that Christ did is to make of us adoptive sons of God. Who better than one who is, in fact, as a personal property, the Son of God? Who better than he, incarnate, to extend that sonship to us? Uh, in fact, it says in Galatians 4, verse 4, 5, But when the fullness of time was come, God sent his son made of a woman, made under the law, that he might redeem them, coming to teach us through preaching, should be the divine word. So these are all the fittingnesses. Now, I could say more. Why did he take on human nature? And I'm going to have to stop soon, but it's something to think about. As it is, human nature is certainly not worthy of being incorporated into a divine person to receive divinity, to put it in one way. It's not repugnant. I mean, it's not impossible for God to do that either. So it's possible, not owed, but just as water can stand still for Christ to stand on it as a miracle, so too as a miracle could God cause a human nature to be incorporated into a divine person. Now, man had fallen. Human nature was broken. Human nature needed to be repaired. And so it makes sense that it is a human nature that he takes on. He doesn't take on some other nature. Not many people have thought of this, but, you know, he, why not some other nature? I'm not going to say anything ridiculous. Anything else would be ridiculous. So I'm not even going to say it. Why human? Because our nature was wounded. It needed to be redeemed. And to give us hope, to show that a human nature can live in close, intimate union with the divine nature in the divine person, gives us hope that we too can in some way participate of divinity in heaven. Also, he gives an example of a perfect man. He, his life is an example for us. We can follow his example, the way he lived. If you take it on another new human nature, we wouldn't see that as a lesson. And there are other arguments of fittingness. You can come up with your own if you like. So I'm going to end here pretty soon with uh, one last consideration, the circumstances of the incarnation. And then I want to read to you a beautiful passage from St. Gregory Nazianzus, in which he kind of, in a whirlwind of, of biblical illusions, brings together the reality of the incarnation of the hypostatic union. So first, circumstances of the incarnation, the time. Why not immediately after the fall? As soon as Adam and Eve bite that fruit, incarnation, redemption right away. Why not? It could have happened. God did not have to do it the way he did. He could have done it that way too. But it makes more sense that it would wait for the fullness of time. It was fitting that the God-man should appear at the apex of history. A long history of sin prepared man to acknowledge his need for a savior. St. Athanasius says this too. We needed to be better confronted with our sinfulness to understand our need for it. Adam and Eve may only have had a dim idea of the consequences of their sin. But then as history rolled on and as human nature became really more and more corrupt, and you can tell because our longevity shrank from you know, Adam, who lives nearly a thousand years, to the life expectancy 
you know, in the last century BC of about 45, and other things besides. But there's more for it to be the fullness of time, as St. Paul says. The high, first of all, the history of Israel had exhausted itself by now. Israel had gone through one, you know, um, uh, being imprisoned or ex- uh, being in Egypt then having its own judges, kind of anarchical, then the kingdom, then Babylonian exile and coming back, which, this, which is why the last few centuries, there's the Maccabee revolt, but otherwise we kind of, the history of Israel has tapered off in terms of events. Thanks to Alexander the Great, we have one broad, highly civilized uh, culture, the Greek culture, which involves art and language and philosophy. And particularly language and philosophy of the Greeks is what's going to allow the gospel to be written down and presented in a formulation that is sound. So we had to wait for the Greek language to exist, for the philosophers to have philosophized, and for Alexander the Great to have spread this all over the place. And the last piece of the puzzle, Israel, Greeks, is the Romans who provided an infrastructure, a postal service, roads, aqueducts, and not surprisingly, the first worldwide, well, census. One might say from the point of view fittingness, we had to wait for a time when a bureaucracy had developed to such a position that it could do a census of all the inhabitants around the, the Mediterranean basin. That's when the incarnation was best suited. And it happened then. Um, as several theologians have said, if the incarnation happened at the dawn of history, it may never have been recorded. We, it might have passed unnoticed even. Whereas this way, it happened in the fullness of time with a full empire, a full civilization. It was not going to go unnoticed. So that's in terms of the circumstances. Why Bethlehem? Okay, you've got Christmas cards. Uh, after all, you might ask, why not Jerusalem? After all, Isaiah said, the Lord shall come forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Why didn't it take place in Jerusalem? Matthew says he shall be called the Nazarene. Why didn't it happen in Nazareth? And John says, well, our Lord says in the Gospel of John, I was born for this. I came into the world that I should give testament to the truth. It would have been easier if he'd been born in Rome to give testament to the truth, the center of the empire. So it seems he shouldn't be born in Bethlehem, but Micah, I hope you have some Christmas cards with Micah 5.2. And thou, Bethlehem Ephrata, out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be the ruler in Israel. He's the seed of David. David was from Bethlehem. Furthermore, Bethlehem is the city of bread, and he's the bread from heaven. In fact, St. Bede, the venerable, says that every altar is a little Bethlehem, because on every altar, Christ is takes on flesh, if you like, he comes down. And um, But he did go to Jerusalem to assert his kingship and his priesthood, so that works too. So, so much for that. Now, take a deep breath. I'm going to read from a text written in the 370s, maybe. St. Gregory of Nazianzus, he was a good friend of St. Basil the Great, and he wrote many speeches and orations, and this is from his... Um, speech on the sun, which he gave in the face of the Arians. And I'm not going to read the whole thing or even the whole chapter. I just want you to kind of put on your New Testament Sunday school hat 
And as I read the things he say, remember what he's talking about in the events of our Lord that he brings together to show that he is both God and man, the God-man. He hungered, yet he fed thousands. He is indeed living heavenly bread. He thirsted, and yet he exclaimed, whoever thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Indeed, he promised that believers would become fountains. He was tired, yet he is the rest of the weary and the burden. He was overcome by heavy sleep, yet he goes lightly on the sea, rebukes winds, and relieves the drowning Peter. He pays tax, yet he uses a fish to do it. Right, the miracle, the coin and the fish, that's his divinity. Paying tax, human. Indeed, he is emperor over all who demand the tax. He called a Samaritan demonic, demonically possessed. No, I beg your pardon. He is called, others call him, a Samaritan demonically possessed. But he rescues the man who came down from Jerusalem and fell among thieves. Yes, he is recognized by demons. He drives out demons. He drowns deep a legion of spirits and sees the prince of demons falling like lightning. He is stoned, yet not hit. He prays, yet he hears prayers. He weeps, and yet he puts an end to weeping. He asks where Lazarus is laid. He was a man. Yet he raises Lazarus. He was God. He is sold, and cheap was the price, 30 pieces of silver. Yet he buys back the world at the mighty cost of his own blood. A sheep, he is led to the slaughter, yet he shepherds Israel, and now the whole world as well. A lamb, he is dumb, mute, yet he is the word, proclaimed by the voice of one crying in the wilderness. He is weakened, wounded, yet he cures every disease and every weakness. He is brought up to the tree and nailed to it, as the cross, yet by the tree of life, he restores us, and so on. And so you can go on. It's this whirlwind of paradox, apparent paradoxes juxtaposed to show how these two different natures, human and divine, could be part of one single person, the divine person. And that's the incarnation. Thank you for your patience. We're going to do a very short Q&A tonight. Um, and, uh, uh, the first question we're going to bring out to their doctor is, uh, asking for resources for people that want to go, uh, read more about the early Christian heresies. Okay. Uh, what would you recommend? Something consumable. Don't pull out your, you know, 90 pounder over there, but something consumable on the early Christian heresies. Oh, my heavens. Well, uh, there, yes, there is a book called, ah, what was it called? Um, it's by one of those Catholic apologists, like one of those Catholic answers men. It's from the 90s. I'll have, I'll, I'll have to send it in. It's called 21 Heresies, I think. Nice. And it goes from those early heresies all the way to modernism. I think Islam is in there even. Well, we're gonna, we'll link it. We'll link you. Give it to us. Yes. We'll link it in the email for tomorrow. We also have Dr. Marshner on the yes. early councils of the church. is excellent. It, it might have been Aquilina. I don't know. The thing is, I, I, I have to confess, I... I'm a French speaker. I do my research in French or in Latin, and sometimes I don't necessarily—I don't remember what the books are for the English-speaking stuff. Um, but I know there's one—one one of the. It could be Mike Aquilina, 
It's not the father's noblesse. Belog the Great Heresies. People, are, I'm, I'm very glad they're giving me crib notes here. Everyone's super generous here. <laughs> yeah, Belog the Great Heresies is a good one for sure. Uh, and he has a good style too. You can definitely go to him. He's the one, Belok, who includes Islam as a heresy, which is a point of view. Uh, not everyone thinks they're heretic. It depends on what you mean by heresy, of course. So yeah, Belok would be a, a, a good entry into that. Otherwise, a good any good church history should outline them. Now, the history of heresy, oh, okay. The history of heresies can get very deep and complicated. I mean, the Aryan crisis alone occasioned the first book that Cardinal Henry, John Henry Newman ever wrote when he was a young man. It's a thick term. And he came back to that idea in the development of Christian doctrine. Now, there's a good thing in terms of um, not so much focusing on heresies as error, but seeing how the truth is better and better expressed and preserved in the church is John Henry Newman's essay on the development of Christian doctrine. Uh, but you'll need to have a notebook and a pencil by your side for that one because er you get into, I mean, some it's of the stuff, stuff I talked about today is deep stuff. So there again, yeah. you do need to think about things deeply, but it's worth thinking about. Dr. Pepino, can you talk a little bit about what's the relationship between God the Son and God the Father as far as does God the Father experience what God the Son experiences? Oh. You know, no. is that a heresy or what's the relationship between Yeah, them? no, no. God the Father begets the Son. I mean, they're all God. And so the, the nature is God. And it's only their relations among themselves that are different. So in other words, the Son is related to the Father by means of begottenness. And the Father is related to the Son by means of begettingness, if you like. He begets him. Now, the person who undergoes the, uh, the events, you know, the life of our, of, of our Lord, is the person of the Word. It would be wrong to say that the Father suffers. Uh, the Father does not suffer. Um, the Son, the divine person of the Son, suffers through his human nature, not through his not by means of his divine nature, but by means of his human nature. Yet, it is the one person who experiences all of this. But that does not extend to the father who cannot suffer, who does not suffer. Uh, so that's the answer there. And there you have to look at the Trinity, and there's yet another long thing to look at. Uh, but the incarnation does not bleed out into the other persons. Although the Son is fully God, and so when you see Christ on the icon, you're looking at a representation of God, but you're not, and but you're not looking at a representation of the Father as Father. Now uh, I see someone is asking the text of Saint Gregory of Nazianzus. I used it is the third theological oration, and that is from a very, if I may, a very good uh, patristic series in good English. You can get cheap translations of the Father of the Church online. They were translated in the 19th century and illegible. This is from St. Vladimir's Press. If they're orthodox, that's fine. But they, I plug them because they do very good work. And they publish these nice, small books that are translations of the fathers in good, understandable, modern English. And that particular one, which I'll type up. So the title of the, of the work, of course, I mean, the author, 
is Gregory of Nazianzus. And these are always in print. So there's the name of the author. And this particular book contains the five theological orations and two letters into the mix to, I think it's Cledonius. Uh, it may be Kelly, but I think it's Cledonius. Translated by Williams and Wickham. But anyway, St. Vladimir's Press. If you go to their website, you will see under their patristic series, all of these marvelous things. Now, of course, they're weighted on the Oriental side, so you get more of the Greek and sometimes Syriac even, um, Oriental fathers, and this is a good one. In the West, we have, and there are, there are other series. There's one called Fathers of the Church out of Catholic University of America. They're still going strong. They've got some in all sorts of things in That's, there. That's uh, for those that are looking up. It's SVS Press. SVS. Saint, Saint Vladimir Seminary Press. Seminary Press. That's right. That's SVS. right. Georgia, further on this point, uh, we do have a great talk in our library from Father Wine Andy. Um, it's titled "Does God Suffer?" I'll link that in the follow-up email too. But it goes just into this point, and he's he's a fantastic theologian. Uh, Dr. Papina, you mentioned him at the beginning of this lecture, actually. So this next question from Ronald, he, he writes in, I understand the incarnation is an historical event. If God became flesh in the person of Jesus, then what form did God take when he walked in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve? Ah, yes. Now, he did not have a body there. Scott Hahn has a wonderful explanation of all of this, where he says, we're not about to imagine God in the Garden of Eden, kind of, you know, crunch, crunch feeling the steps on the twigs and the acorns. No. No, their God was not incarnate. There's only one incarnation, and it's the one that we know and love from Christmas. Well, it's really from the uh, 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 the, the Annunciation, right? The 27th. So in March, 25th of March, is really where the incarnation takes place. But because we saw the incarnation with our eyeballs at Christmas, that's why the Nativity is, is called the Feast of the Incarnation. Uh, no. In the Garden of Eden, God did not take on a material, concrete form. In the, in the Garden of Eden, in the original friendship of, of humanity, Adam and Eve, with God, that he, was not, he could not be seen or touched. They hear a wind, whoosh, that's what they, but he did not take on a form. The language of the Bible there is uh, figurative when it speaks of, whenever it speaks and this is an important question. This is another error, which I'm going to write, okay? This is going to be the occasion to teach you all sorts of Scrabble uh, words. <laughs> Anthropomorphism is, the, is, is to give to God a human shape outside of the incarnation. So when it says the finger of God, the arm of God, the hind, quart, right, the hind quarters of God, God does not have any of these material things. In the incarnation, yes. Um, but no, one is not to understand these things as literally referring to the hand or the finger or the hand quarters or the feet of God, right? The footstool of God. God does not have feet to put on the ottoman there. Um, that those, those are figurative expressions. Not, they're not to be understood in a wooden, literal way. And that's no. the constant teaching of the church. Yes, I just enjoyed Dr. Rapino's lecture immensely. I don't have a particular question, but I'm, I'm going to reread my notes and think about it. 
And I'm glad you mentioned St. Vladimir's Press. They also have some very interesting books on icons. Oh, yes, yes, they do all sorts of things. Wonderful, yeah. Yeah. So, well, I guess I'll just add add one commentary, really, is that everything is for the glory of God. And that's what the incarnation is for. It it gave glory to God in an even greater, uh, just forever, even even more than ever before, in a sense, Mm -hmm. because we can give him glory, having known him and touched him and sensed him. Uh, through the incarnation. And our fall, that I just want to end on in, on this, because the fathers of the church sometimes say he had to do it this way. St. Athanasius does this. It's only a matter of fit, fittingness. In other words, and I'll stop, I'll end there. Man's fall and need for healing provided the occasion for God to save us. And the most fitting way was through the incarnation. He didn't have to do any of it. So it is all a free gift. We didn't deserve it. He didn't need to do it. But out of his love, he did. And this is the most fitting way. And so he did it that way. That's beautiful. We hope you enjoyed this program from the Institute of Catholic Culture. Remember to download our app and share our online library with friends, co-workers, and family members. To learn more, get involved, and support the Institute's work, visit instituteofcatholicculture.org and visit us on social media.